Hello, boys and ghouls. And welcome to a blooming episode that's sure to grow on you. It's the story of a boy, a girl, and a strange and unusual plant with a taste for human blood. It's the Little Shop of Horrors. Join us, please as we follow this flowery phenomenon from its beginnings as a 1960 Roger Corman film, notable for having a very young Jack Nicholson in a small part, and for being the fastest made feature film in the Roger Corman canon. Then, dim the house lights as we track this title's transformation into the world of musical theater. And from there, to the 1986 feature film directed by Frank Oz, whose original ending just won't die. So, make like a tree, beware of thorns, and hit the dirt as we present Boys and Ghouls Episode 80, all about the little shop of horrors. You want to see something really scary? They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead. Zombies, exploding heads. Psychos, fanatics, murderers, nutcases. Now, do we all agree that what we are dealing with is vampires? I know that one of you is a werewolf. Ain't nothing. Dead I want to kill you. You ever talk to a corpse? Satan is our pastor. It's boring. Fat Caterpillars. That's my rapper name. Cat Look Caterpillars. <laughs> okay, that's weird, and I love it. Okay, I'm gonna... I'm gonna push this towards you? Yeah. Okay, this is... By the way... <clears throat> yes? I realized this earlier today. I went and got my nails done on Monday... And I looked down at my hands today. Well, I noticed two things. One, yeah. I had also changed the background on my computer a couple days ago to like a green background. Well, like one of the Apple ones that's available, but it was like a green with a big pink flower in the middle. Those are an affront to me. Just not flowers, but just like the factory installed backgrounds. I get it. I'm always just like, put up something personal, stat. I've done that too, but sometimes they're really pretty. Anyway, okay. my point is... I realized, like, I've been staring at a big flower, and then I looked down yeah. at my fingers and realized that I got my fingernails painted green, and I realized that this topic we've been working on has oh. infiltrated my brain. You're more plant than woman now. I am. It's slowly taking over, and I just noticed it today, all at once. I'm going to get all mossy like Stephen King. That's exactly right. Um, Cat. Marshall. Do you have any spooky gab? Did I talk about my spider hallucinations on this podcast yet? A lot of your spooky gab seems to be like just whatever's between your ears. <laughs> yeah, that's the scariest place. <laughs> okay, spider hallucinations, no. Well, put a pin in that for a moment. I'll just oh. tell you 
elsewise that you know I'm on a journey to try to fill in my Stephen King gaps. Yes. I just finished Firestarter. Finished reading it. Okay. Need to watch the movie, but I just finished that book and it's on Oh gosh, what's next? Let me look. And you haven't like given yourself a time No. It's frame. just there's no like This is just uh, what you're doing now. I can't put any more stress or deadline. My whole life is a deadline like with my work. So, I can't do that to my It's just got to be when it happens and it's been months and months I've been reading Firestarter. Just sure. finished it. So, it's just an ongoing yeah. thing. Yeah. Next up is Roadwork and then Cujo. Pretty excited about that. Okay. Pretty excited about that. Um, so you're taking the Bachman books as they were released. I'm taking everything as it was released. I think I've shown you this before, but like all the red circles are the ones I have not read yet. And all the black check marks are the ones I have. So, you know, I've obviously hopped around. So now I'm just going back chronologically. And I made this list based on what the internet told me. Okay. Short story collections, everything just kind of in the chronological order. I just released. thought you would have taken the Bachman books as they were released as, quote, the Bachman books. What didn't I do here? Well, just Roadwork, Rage, and The Long Walk were all released as the Bachman books. Mm, after oh. people had caught on that Richard Bachman was, in fact, Stephen King. Well, what I have, and it's been a while since I did this research, but I have the Bachman books down here in 85. That's where... where well, so by I, the time you get to the Bachman books, you'll have collectively read them. Great. Then I'll just put that check mark in there. This okay. is just I wanted to make this fully comprehensive, but I take your point. Anyway, yeah, that's where I'm at, and I'm really excited about it. And it also feels like I won't make it through all these before I die. He managed to write the. He managed know, to write them before and he isn't dies. That sad. I know. I know. And who knows? Maybe I'll hop to the front of the line and read like The Outsider. You know, before I go back to the early stuff. I don't know because otherwise I'll never read any of his new stuff. If I'm whatever. Yeah, you should um, set up a side rule about that. Yeah. An um, amendment. An amendment. I can use that as my spooky gap, and maybe next time I'll tell you about my spider hallucinations. Okay, tune in later, folks. <laughs> My spooky gab was a long time coming. A few months ago, I was contacted by Crazy Joe. Oh, sure. Crazy Joe has his own outlet to the world in the form of Megapodtastic. And he contacted me uh, to see if I'd be coming home, as I normally do, back to the Pennsylvania area for Christmas time. Mm -hmm. And said, hey, I've got something you can put in your spooky gab. I just need like a couple hours of your time. We got together. I actually met him in a mall parking lot. At the Plymouth Meeting Mall. So geographically, we're out in that Plymouth Meeting Mall area. Okay. Where I then went with Crazy Joe to a second location. Did he bag you over the head and then put you in the trunk? No. Okay. It was not a secret uh, where we were going. I mean, it was, it was supposed to be a surprise. I was kind of two steps ahead of him just based on like, well, we have to go during the daytime and it's outdoors and it doesn't matter when we go. Mm -hmm. As long as it's daytime. And I'm like, well, that's clearly a cemetery. That, that this is, I hope so. This I is clearly a cemetery is trip. Going. Yeah. Because, like, those are the only things with those demands on their mm -hmm. hours. Cat, mm -hmm. it was a cemetery. Oh, my God. My favorite place. But it was one of those great old Pennsylvania cemeteries where, one, it was cold and the trees were bare. And it was, you said a graveyard is only if there's a church? Yeah, it's got to be attached to and affiliated with a church to be a graveyard. Then it was a graveyard. Oh, snap. We parked and we got out. And he has an official, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer stake. Okay. And he's like, here's a clue. And I'm like, okay. Okay. Took us a little bit. We had to uh, hit the rows. And, um, of course, Among this place yeah. has some great, oh, just look at this. Look at that cemetery. And it didn't hurt that we were there on such a gray and blustery that's got, day. That's got some Night of Living Dead vibes. 
Sure. You know what I mean? It feels yeah, like we're on the opposite end of the state. Feel, but it feels that way, you know? Very nice. But in fact, uh, he led me to this grave right here, if you want to read it. Tried to clean it up a little. When you visit graves, when you know that you're visiting graves and it's not a surprise grave, bring like a thing of canned air or just mm -hmm. like, just a pointed object so you can maybe like clean the moss off it or something. Mm. You know, you're always standing there and you're like, what do I say? What am I supposed to do here? Yeah. I've come to this grave. Yeah. Bring a cleaning object. That's a nice some piece kind of, of a advice. Yeah. Brillowed sponge. All right. Well, let me read it already. Oh, it I, says. I, I zoomed in a little <clears throat> too far. Edward Van Sloan, born 1882, died 1964. Is this supposed to be something I should know? It is, because you've said that name a few times on this podcast this time last year when referring to the first stage actor and then film <gasps> actor who originated the role of. Van Helsing. Marshall, I've forgotten full topics that we've covered. You and I spoke about this recently, like yeah. where I'm like, did we cover that? We did. We did a whole episode on that four years ago. So forgive me, but I can't. My brain, I put in new information. Old information falls out. That is so cool. You just pronounced his name like the same. Like I'm pretty intimate with our episodes because I'm the one that edits them. Okay. You're just serving my point. And that you're far more in intimate with the episode. And I than know I that you've pronounced his name that way. <laughs> I did the yeah, same like way. Edward Van Sloan. Wow. Like you really hit that low. I like to think that if I developed like amnesia or Alzheimer's or something that like if you put that in front of me, I'd something inside of me would still say it exactly that same way. Let's hope. It, it's just part of your core personality. So. Edward wow. Van Sloan. That's very cool. Pennsylvanian Edward Van Sloan. Wow. What an unassuming uh, grave. Yeah. For the Edward Van Sloan. Right. He's got. 1964. It's a name. It's a birth year and it's a death year. And that's all that's there. I never thought of myself as one of these guys, but we both are, Kat, you mm. and I, and all most adults listening, is that we're going to have one of those grave markers that spans the centuries. It's, wow. It's going to be the 19-something-something something to the 20-something-something. Something. Wow. And he's like one of those like, 1882, cowboy times, 1964, the swinging 60s. Color television. Yeah. Wow. What? He must have been amazed every day. Right, and ours or will be... Or frightened by the changing times. Yours will be like bicentennial... To 2021. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Thanks, Crazy Joe. Yes, That's thank so you. so cool. And he, um, he videotaped the experience and said he would not put it up on his site until we posted our episode wow i so can't believe you hung on to this podcast professionalism this right there time. it sure is but yeah edward van sloan all right cue introduction Finally listening to this music. What I'm saying is, I can't get the music out of my head. <laughs> I've okay. had Mean Green Mother from Outer Space in my head for about 47 hours. And it won't leave. And it's a good song, but holy cow. Oh, I find myself tunes. whistling various tunes mm. from the musical. Be honest, in the shower, is it somewhere that's green? Mostly it's dentist. <laughs> that's a good one. 
But yeah, uh, they've all found their way into my mental rotation. So, hey everybody, we're doing Little Shop of Horrors. And uh, it started as a B-film, the very definition of a B-film, in 1960. It was then a play that ran off-Broadway, and then later Broadway. Because it was uh, such a hit. Because it was such a hit. And it has been, I mean, since then, performed all over the place, from high school's to Broadway mm-hmm. and other live incarnations. And just a couple months ago, yeah. as of this recording, I saw it on stage at the Pasadena Playhouse in beautiful Pasadena, California, which was my very first real introduction to anything Little Shop. So you're starting in the middle. Yes, so I had heard the like title song. Mm-hmm. Just like the chorus, like it's I, out there. I could have sung it to you had you asked me a year ago. I'd been like, "Oh, little shop." Like I would, I knew that. Yeah. I knew the line, "Feed me, Seymour." I knew there was a carnivorous plant. I had no idea what the plot was, so I was so so green, pun intended, going into seeing it on stage. And I'll explain that experience when we get there. But um, wow, to have escaped such like a juggernaut of a property for that long to then sort of be able to be surprised by every joke, every song on stage was really a gift. And Alec and I were seeing it with some old friends of ours, an old boss of his, and their kids. Oh, there were kids uh, present. Which was really That's fun. Nice. The kids really liked it. So I saw it on cable when I was a kid. Feed me! Seymour's green thumb drips red blood and creates a mean green mother from outer space in this botanical beauty of a musical. Little Shop of Horrors is next. <laughs> the 1986 musical directed by Frank Oz starring Rick Moranis. And then when I found out just over the years that it was a movie from 1961st, that it was really low budget, it was like, that makes sense because it was so out there that to have arrived whole cloth in that form seems pretty impossible. Yeah. That would have have to have been something first, and then that was built on. And then that became something that was built on. And then that became mm-hmm. the 1986 Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. Seymour, where did you get such a weird plant? Should we, for some listeners, remind them of the basic plot oh, that, yeah. that all three might have in common? Yeah. Reasonably? Let's do that. Okay, so for all three, that being the 1960, the play, which was created in around 82... And then the film in 86. Mm -hmm. There's a little flower shop on Skid Row. And it's Mr. Mushnick. Business is bad, but Seymour, his uh, young employee who has a crush on the other employee, Audrey, Mm -hmm. creates or has found the Audrey 2 very strange plant. strange plant that he has named Audrey 2 after Audrey, who he has a crush on. Yeah. And then business is booming, but unfortunately... Business the, is booming because of this strange and unusual plant. Yeah, people, people are coming come in to it. check it out and stay to buy. Come for the plant, stay for the flowers. But the plant survives on human blood, and it goes from needing a little to a lot, which leads to murder on Seymour's part. And he's a pretty gentle soul, and things go from bad to worse the bigger the plant gets. And in all versions, the plant talks. Was that a surprise to you when you, when you went back to like the 1960s? 
It was all a surprise to me. Okay. I don't know. I don't think I had an expectation about the 1961 other than I was like, huh, you're for it's a musical, not a musical. The th- things Weird. would like, you know, talk that wouldn't normally talk sure. in a musical, but sure. like in the rather spare 1960 Given version. Given that it's a Roger Corman film, I guess it's not as surprising that there's something a little bonkers going Kinda on. anything goes. But I see your point that like, you wouldn't be surprised if maybe it like talked to him in his head or like he just got... Or he, he just, he knew just it understood needed it needed blood. blood versus it screaming for it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just going like, feed me. Yeah. It's about flowers. But it's not only about flowers, right? So there are a few short stories that over the years people have talked about as potentially as being inspiration for Roger Corman's film. And like Grain of Salt, I don't think he's ever said any of these were directly... In the six books that I have, none of them have mentioned them. it. Okay. But I do want to recommend... screenwriter, Charles Griffith. That's right. He was also, uh, in the 1960 movie, he was the voice of Audrey Jr. And he uh, directed all of the exteriors. Cool. Uh, whenever they would go out into Skid Row. And he was the burglar. The burglar who came in and then got eaten. <laughs> so this guy might have been inspired by something in the history of man-eating plants in literature, which is as follows. And I'm sure there are more stories about, you know, odd plants and or man-eating plants. But these three Mm -hmm. really have elements that make you go, huh, okay. Mm. The first of which is from 1905, H.G. Wells. Okay, what do you write? It's a story called The Flowering of the Strange Orchid. And it's been a while since I read that one. So they all, these three kind of bleed together. So I'll just mention that one. And then I'll say that 51 years later, Arthur C. Clarke, published a short story called The Reluctant Orchid. So H.G. Wells, The Flowering of the Strange Orchid. Then The Reluctant Orchid, 50-some years mm-hmm. later. Both these heavy hitters. That was pretty heavily derived from that first one. Oh. But then in the middle of that, in 1932, a writer named John Collier wrote a story called Green Thoughts. And I just finished that one today. And um, Have these been fun for you or just yeah. like work? No, really fun. Okay. When I heard that they were short stories, I just happened to like two of them. I was able to just find online and read them, which were Flowering the Strange Orchid and the Reluctant Orchid. You can read both of those. Just Google them, mm-hmm. which I thought was kind of fun. And then I bought a short story collection for the other one, which was like $7 or something on Amazon. Digital? No, I bought the book. Oh my goodness. And introduction by Ray Bradbury, who said, by the way, that mm-hmm. the reason he... Oh, the other thing to mention about John Collier, who wrote Green Thoughts, is that he worked on Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Okay. And Ray Bradbury says in this introduction that one of the reasons he chose, that Ray Bradbury chose to work on Alfred Hitchcock Presents is because John Collier did, because he respected him so much. And John Collier is a... I really enjoyed his writing. At any rate, all three of these stories are really cool, but Green Thoughts, which I just finished reading today, I think had the most specific kind of like corollary to at least the 1960 movie because in the other two stories there's like an element of like in one of them there's like a smell that comes out of the plant that makes you incapacitated so it can like drain your blood the other one is like the tendrils come get you and then the plant takes you in and your face kind of pops out of it and you are you have become the plant but there's a very realistic version of your face so the first thing that the plant eats is a cat then you can see the cat's face, okay. and then two well, it's humans. Taking me rather back to the pods of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Totally, but also the faces in the 1960 movie. Yeah, at in the, the end. Plant. Yeah. At the end. 
But what I found really unique about Green Thoughts is that the main character in it, who is the one who, like, found this plant, gets taken in by the plant and becomes part of the plant and you get to hear him describe what it, like, feels like to be a plant now with still having his, like, human faculties okay. in his mind, which is a really interesting thing. I'm a plant. A plant? I thought men like you were usually called a fruit. Very funny. All that is just to say those three short stories were fun and interesting if you like reading short stories. The language is a little bit dense. and I'm, I'm glad you, you went that direction. Fun. Yeah. You know I like to deep dive on, like, where the nuggets kind of began. I like to think maybe Charles Griffith or whatever was reading these and going like that's really messed up that'd make a cool movie like i don't know i have to imagine he did at least one of them possibly or you know it could have just come to him yeah the the idea of the venus flytrap and the man eating i without formal research would say that most man-eating plants in popular culture around that time would have come from like the chapter cereals and probably tarzan hmm. probably found himself in the jungle fighting a man-eating plant Maybe some mad scientists, maybe the kind of scientists who have their own island, would just be like, you know, I'm going to feed you to my man-eating plant. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they'd have to escape somehow. Um, By the way, that was your mant voice. <laughs> man-eating plant. That's the same voice you used when you were describing mant. Mant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. But uh, what's on record as the origin of this particular project? If you go far back enough, would be a previous collaboration between Griffith and Corman, which is the uh, film Bucket of Blood. Were you able to, to get away? No, I was too busy reading short stories from 1905 and 1932 and 1956. Well, <laughs> wasted all my time with my head in a book. Come, enjoy yourself. <laughs> Where the hilarious enjoy the horrifying in a bucket of blood. Bucket of Blood, I like because I enjoy uh, what's referred to as beat exploitation, which is taking the beatnik movement of around that era and just concentrating on all the stuff where uh, people tried to cash in on it, either through like movies that they'd be like, follow the beat generation. Beatniks at their bawdiest, the creative urge at its most primitive. Or like a beatnik starter kit and they would send you in the mail like a beret. And like a fake goatee, things like that. Or you could uh, send away for like a jazz dictionary, talk like a beatnik. Yes, cats, yes. If you want to know how beatniks live, William and me will show you. And how much is that going to cost us? So Bucket of Blood stands out among them. So it's a very like beat coffee house that's full of artists and such. And Dick Miller is the uh, very mild waiter there. And he wants to, uh, you know, be a big, important artist like all the other people who hang out there and get the girls to like him. And winds up making sculptures out of things that have actually died at first by accident and then, like, later on purpose because it's like that's how he can make these sculptures look surreal hmm. by someone who's actually died. I'm not the busboy anymore. That's right. Walter has become a sculptor. I'm a model, you know. Would you like to do me? I just might. And then he winds up turning himself into a statue at the end. Which they didn't have much money to do, so they didn't make an actual statue. They just, like, put a bunch of gray makeup on Dick Miller and called it a day. So that was made in about six days. A year later... A, pr a practical eternity compared to how long it took them to make yeah. Little Shop. About a year later, 
Roger Corman was having lunch with the guy who like ran some studio space where he was renting an office, which was what is now the Jim Henson oh, studio, sure. formerly the Chaplin studio. It's a bit of a landmark here in Los Angeles. The outside of it, I've never been inside it. Daniel has. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The it's outside so of cool it looking. looks like a row of British cottages. Because mm-hmm. it was Chaplin who like created all that back in the 1920s. But it, it changed a lot of hands over the years. And for a while, Corman was there. And I used to think that it was already a florist shop set that was left over from another production. But it wasn't. It was like an office set. But it could be transformed to whatever they really needed it to be. And Corman asked the guy, he's like, leave that set up. I want to rent it for two days soon. And he got together with Griffith and said, what can we make uh, with this set? And the idea they came up with was turn into a flower shop. And it's about a boy and his man-eating plant. And it's pretty similar to the thing that we made in six days. But now we're going to make it in two days. These are two wild and crazy guys. Yep. Uh, one common misconception is... That this was done with sets left over from Bucket of Blood, which it wasn't. Mm -hmm. One did eventually lead to the other, and it was done with leftover sets, but it wasn't from Bucket of Blood. Mm -hmm. Although Corman would do that, he would have sets set up, usually if it was like a castle. He's like, I've got this castle, and I've got two more days. Let's start making something else. Welcome to Miracle Pictures, where they make a picture a week. And if it's a good picture, it's a miracle. So they got the actors to rehearse for three days and shoot for two. And then they did some like night shoots, like second unit stuff, right? Yeah, so really when they say that it was shot in two or two and a half days, that doesn't include another two days of exteriors. Mm -hmm. Still. Four days is yeah. really quick. I heard three. I heard one day of exteriors. But, okay. You know, yeah. three or four days is... No one has ever no said more than four yeah. and a half, I guess, if you take two and a half plus two. Certainly not five. Five is right out. So principal photography being everything in the shop, dentist office, and uh, Seymour's home, and I guess the police station. That was all within like two, two and a half days. With a modest budget of like seven grand or something. Yeah, I'd call that modest. And they got everyone for a week, five days, a work week, and had them rehearse for three days. So when they actually showed up onto the set, it was just, know your lines, hit your marks, go, go, go. And they lit the whole set like they do for television. And this part, I almost didn't believe, but the proof is in the film, which is they use multiple cameras to film it. I would have thought that as cheap as Corman was, that he would only use like one camera, like a typical movie shoot. But I guess time on the set was what he was really trying to save, and right. time with the actors. If you can get as much coverage as possible when yeah. you're doing each take, then. So yeah, I guess film and cameras was an expense that he splurged on mm. so he could get the actors briefly and the sets for just a short amount of time. And if you watch the continuity between shots, it's like a three camera shoot because it was the same. Yeah. motion the same action if a guy's like crossing one to the other in the shot it was changes the same cross it was the same yeah. cross which yeah. you know movies do what they can to make everything look the same but when you see the real thing mm-hmm. and you're looking for it it's like oh oh okay yeah. that's that's for real there was more than one camera running yeah how rare for a tiny b film in 1960 where a man-eating talking plant gives homicide something to think about casting we'd already mentioned jack nicholson in a small part. Dick Miller was offered the part of Seymour because, you know, he tore it up in Bucket of Blood. Yeah. But I, I think he found it to be too similar to what he'd already done in Bucket of Blood. 
so they brought on, do you have the guy's name? Jonathan Hayes. Jonathan Hayes, a veteran of B-films, if, if you look through his other credits. A lot of science fiction in oh, there. Oh, sure, yeah. And how about the original Audrey? Oh, boy, you kiss good, Audrey. Oh, I guess I just have a good kisser. Jackie Joseph. Jackie Joseph, who, uh, along with Dick Miller, this is the bit of casting that really got me. I'd been watching Jackie Joseph most of my life as Mrs. Fudderman in Gremlins and Gremlins 2. Tis the season to be jolly. Right, Murray? And also Mrs. Fudderman in her day. Wow. Mm -hmm. My name is Sergeant Joe Fink, working the 24-hour shift out of Homicide. And this is my workshop, the part of town that everybody knows about but that nobody wants to see. Where the tragedies are deeper, the ecstasy's wilder, and the crime rate consistently higher than anywhere else. Skid Row. My beat. Right off the bat, you get a Dragnet parody. Because Dragnet was pretty hot stuff. I will have to take your word for it. I don't really know anything about Dragnet. The, well, tr <laughs> as soon as you hear anything from Dragnet, you'll be like, oh yeah, that. Mm. The cops, the two cops are like, this is my beat. This is the city. At 9.45 a.m., I went into this. And like when the two cops are talking to each oh, other. Oh, sure. How's it going, Joe? Uh, how's the family? I lost a kid. Mm -hmm. From what? Playing with matches. Arms the brakes. Yeah. Like that's 1,000% yeah. Dragnet. Yeah. Everything with those cops uh, is Dragnet. And that's how they chose to start the movie. And they started like on a drawing of Skid Row, which I know that's just sort of saving money. You know, start on a drawing, sure. I guess. But it also does what Frank Oz later did. He directed the 86, which is create a false world. Create something that while it looks real, isn't real. And you can tell it's not real. And that way you can better buy, well, one, that people are just breaking into song. Yeah. And two, that there's a man-eating plant. Right. Breaking into song. Yeah, if you establish that kind of heightened yeah. setting, then yeah, it is easier to sort of get away with that stuff. The most terrifying period in the history of my beat began in a little run-down floor shop called Mushniks. Now, I know back when we did uh, our episode all about horror movies in Los Angeles, we both watched that L.A. Plays Itself documentary. Oh, yeah. This Sorry, movie. the documentary is called Los Angeles Plays Itself. Do you remember the guy made a big deal about how he hates people calling it L.A.? Like, that was one of no. the main things he repeated over That's... and over again. Anyway. So in Los Angeles plays itself. Yeah. This movie wouldn't have made a bad addition because I don't know how much Skid Row... Like, like that's production value right there. Mm -hmm. Like, all those, like, arcade, pool hall, flop house, liquor stores, all jammed in together. That's quite a, like, piece of history. Not many people, I think, went out of their way to preserve. Mm-hmm. So if you want to see what it looked like, and believe me, those weren't extras. Sometimes, if they needed extras, they would just get bums off the street and like give them some money or some hooch, yeah, and be like, "Hey, be in the back of our scene," uh, which is also what they did at the rail yard later. They just gave scotch to the rail workers and said, "Like, can you make your train move?" But gee, Mister Mushnick, don't I always try to do what's right? And I'm crazy about flowers. I like flowers almost as much as Audrey does. Excellent, you're fired. Why don't you give him a chance to resurrect himself? I give him a chance to quit. I ain't gonna quit. You're a brave boy, you're fired. But that ain't fair, Mr. Mushnick. You know what I'm doing? I'm working on a special surprise plant just for you. I'm growing a plant like you ain't never seen before. I guess one of the differences between Little Shop of Horrors, the first one, and the iterations that followed, is that in this one, Seymour actually created the plant. 
There's no outer space. There's no alien invasion. No plant invasion. Look, Ma, I gotta get my plant and hurry back to the shop. You mean that lousy weed out in the kitchen? Yeah, and if Mr. Mushnick doesn't like it, he's gonna fire me. So, something that didn't make it into the other iterations of Little Shop of Horrors is Seymour's mother. <laughs> in the play and in the 86 musical, based on the play, he was like an orphan that gets taken in by Mr. Mushnick and he lives down in the basement with like the flower pots. But in this one, he's got a mother and the mother was like a hypochondriac alcoholic mm-hmm. who always wanted her medicine. It's oh, like 98% alcohol. alcohol, wasn't she? <laughs> oh, Seymour, you never know what this is going to do for me. And then later, a very broad humor. All of the food she serves is actually like different types of medicine. Mm-hmm. It's like the soup is like cod liver oil with like sulfur powder on top. And it is all pretty gross. Yeah. And later, Seymour gets like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he's like, what's it cure? It don't cure nothing. It's just food. (laughs) Such a thing, eating flowers. Look, don't knock it until you try it, huh? It's the Dick Miller character who suggests that a strange and unusual plant can draw business. And his whole thing is he eats flowers. Mm-hmm. That's the running gag. Yeah, he's pretty funny. That's the best I can do. More, more. But I'm already anemic. Feed me more. Gee, Junior, I'd be happy to give you anything I got, but I gotta keep a little blood for myself or I'll be in worse shape than Mom. Mm. You know, the desire for blood grows. And eventually the plant starts talking. At about the part where, in the play, it starts talking. When it goes from just being a big plant to, like, a sentient plant. But it's all very basic. It's just like, feed me blood. And he goes out, and first it's the the yard bowl, and then... Oh, and then Mr. Mushnick sees him feeding it. And they go off this rule about Venus flytraps, where they only eat, like, three times. And I looked that up to see if it was true, and I, I can only say... true. Kind of. Is it? I think the part that actually does the eating is considered like a bloom mm. on the flytrap, and then it, it will eat three times and then fall off. Oh, but, but the there ne- are other blooms. But the next time that comes, then that eats like three times. Okay. is the best I could get in a, in a reasonable Google search. Mm. But assured that it'll only eat, you know, just a few times and then it'll be done. Mr. Mushnick is sort of tolerant, kind of, of the fact that a person got fed to the plant. Well, the plant is bringing him business Lots of for business. the first time in God knows how long. So yeah. he's turning a blind eye. Yeah, he is. But yeah, if so far this wasn't a little shop of horrors, once the mutilated corpse of a person gets fed to a plant, now we're, we're edging into horror, I'd yeah. say. Yeah. You'll excuse if there's more. I'm only a poor flock. Yeah, yeah. We got about 30 bucks here. Come on now. Where's the rest of it? A thief comes in, played by the writer Charles Griffith, and Mr. Mushnick like tells him the money's in the plant. He's like, get in, get the money, and then the plant just closes around him. So, horror! I think they're kind of setting themselves up for high expectation when you actually put the word horror sure. in yeah. the title. Yeah. Because originally, it was called Passionate People Eater. That's a little sillier. They did the right thing. Yeah, for sure. I'm getting pretty tired of you. I need food. I don't care what you need. Look what you've done to me. You not only made a butcher out of me, but you drove my girl away. Shut up and bring on the food. Don't tell me to shut up. You shut up. Later, when uh, Seymour refuses to go out and get any more bodies, he is quickly hypnotized 
by Audrey Jr. Mm-hmm. And he goes out and he finds, you know, if you're going to kill a prostitute in a movie and keep it a comedy. Sex worker. Sex worker. <laughs> and she, I, I don't even know if her, her character, yeah, no, 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 her character has a name because remember she says it. She, Leonora Clyde. Mm, my name is Leonora Clyde. How's the rain on the rhubarb? Master is hungry. But if you're going to kill one and still call it a comedy, then this is the best way to do it, which is give her a cartoonish popping up. She just keeps like popping up like Bugs Bunny. Well, hello there. Everywhere he goes. She throws a handkerchief and he doesn't pick it up. And then she throws a banana peel, like a literal banana peel. And he slips on it. (laughs) And then he keeps walking like by her and past her. And she keeps like somehow still popping up a la a Warner Brothers cartoon. And then he's sitting on a bench and she just sort of like pops up behind him on the bench. Yeah. So she's more cartoon than person at this point. I never thought anybody would volunteer. Do you volunteer? Sure I do. All right, if you're sure you want to volunteer. All right, my place or yours? He then, uh, instead of flipping a coin for where they should go, flips a rock, spits on it. This part gets a little, well, uh, conceivably tawdry. <laughs> he, like, spits on a rock, and he's, like, wet or dry. And she's, like, wet. And he flips a rock, and it bonks her on the head. <laughs> and she becomes, like, victim number three. A little more charming than that is that uh, that actress, Mary, but M-E-R-I, um, sure she started the shoot as Mary Carsey. She ended this as Mary Wells because she met and married Mel Wells, the guy who played Mr. Mushnick. Whoa! Right? A set romance. Yeah. On a two-day... Wow. No more than five-day production. So they got married during filming? No, I think just like during post. So yeah, little, uh, they did get a divorce. But still, this, uh, dead hooker that got fed to a plant has a half. like, something good came out of it. Exactly. Because I'm in love with you, Audrey. Oh, I'm in love with you too, Seymour. Feed me. What'd you say? I, I was just kidding. I'm hungry. Seymour. I didn't mean it. Why did you say it? Oh, food. You didn't even say that. Oh, yes, I did. I said it. I said it. I'm looking right at you. I'm a ventriloquist. Seymour uh, makes some headway with Audrey, and it seems that she always kind of liked him, or is, I don't know. She doesn't have a song about how much she likes Hmm. Seymour. I think she likes him all right. And now that he's like a big botanist, you know, he's got the confidence to... Spend a little time with her. Take her home to meet mother. Yeah. I like to use the word confidence because I do think it's less about money and fame and more about like, well, he just needed the like gumption. Yeah. To like make a move on this lady. Yes. Unfortunately, his deeds catch up with him when he's about to receive an award for like best plant from the silent flower observers of Uh Southern California. (laughs) And he goes on the chase which, I gotta say, you know, people don't really talk about the chase in this movie, but all those great locations, loved it. The tire yard. That was great. Yeah. It's just this yard full of, like, big, not like, I mean, I guess there's some, like, car tires, but also these, like, big, like, tractor tires. Yep. And, like, I don't know what tires, like, little giant machinery. 
They're called production value tires. Exactly. <laughs> production value. And the way they lit it at night. Yeah. Not just good for a Corman movie and not just good for Little Shop. Good for just any a cool movie. Set. Yeah. Like it looked great. Yeah. And it's just, you know, this place in Los Angeles, this tire yard. He leads him on a chase through uh, some of the more interesting parts of L.A., including this junkyard. And the part that they focused on was this area with just like a bunch of toilets, which now you watch and you're like, eh, toilets. But in 1960, this is the same year that Psycho featured the sound and visual, visual of, a flushing, of a flushing toilet. Now, it wasn't taking down any human waste. It was taking down bits of pieces of paper. But still, on screen, yeah. where women and children can view... A toilet flushing, 15 feet long and luminous uh-huh. on the big screen. That was not done. So just the fact that there were toilets. You know, I, I keep reading just how, like, how hilarious this movie was, and you have to, like, allow for time. And you're like, yeah, it was pretty funny. But it wasn't, like, side-splittingly funny. No. But people did, like, respond to it. Midnight screenings and, like, college campuses, before it came to television, were, like, the main consumers of this movie after its initial run. I have to imagine that if I'd watched this in a theater with a bunch of other people, it would have been a different experience. Even today, yes. Even today, yes. Because I wouldn't have come away from it being like, man, that was funny. I could recognize the humor, but I didn't laugh a ton. Now, I think I did give a, (laughs) at some of the cops' dialogue. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I, I could totally see that it would have been a like a guffaw experience back yeah. then. You wouldn't find him here with the toilets. Let's go back. Beats the cops back to the flower shop, grabs a knife, which I think is pretty quick. Like, I don't know if everybody, because especially there's some bad copies of this out there. Because Corman didn't copyright it. Didn't see the point. But then it had this whole second life. Aside from its cult status before the musical and then after the musical, which came in 82, and then the movie in 86. That's prime VHS rental days. Mm -hmm. So if a company can get their hands on a print and then just dump it out onto video, no matter what the quality is, uh, they did. Mm -hmm. So in some versions, you might not catch that Seymour grabs a knife, but he does. He then steps into the mouth of Audrey Jr., who's now quite large, and says, I'll feed you like you've never been fed. Presumably, he wants to stab it from the inside because mm-hmm. the outside is pretty sure, pretty yeah. tough stuff. And he's going down into it, and it just eats him. The stabbing doesn't work. But the knife's there. It's not suicide. Well, I mean, in the end of the day, it is. But he doesn't just jump into the plant as a way of ending it all. He's trying to fix the situation by yeah. killing the plant. Yeah. And just winds up another one of the blooms going, I, I didn't, didn't mean it. it. The end. The end. But some distributors in the day thought that Mushnik and like Mrs. Shiva might be a little much as far as Jewish stereotypes and kind of balked from distributing it. Mm. And AIP, which was set up to distribute it, also were like, eh, we're not sure. These are sensitive times. But they got Mario Bava's Black Sunday. Black Sunday, the most terrifying motion picture you'll ever see. And they needed something to pair with it, like to put it out in theaters and drive-ins and stuff. Mm-hmm. So the Little Shop of Horrors went out with Black Sunday. Nice. 
Not since Dracula stalked the earth has the world known so terrifying a day or night. You've seen pictures of its poster? Yeah. Is that like an English gentleman or yeah, something? Yeah, it, po- it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It's very 60s, though. Very 60s. I like it, but it, like it does not at all betray it, what kind of There's a plant with all these vines, mm-hmm. and then like a British A very b- businessman. Fancy British man. Like, oh my. I don't know why we're assuming he's English. The bowler hat? Yeah, that's why. And it, it seems to be kind of messing with him. And I guess that just fit with whatever was popular at the time. You know, take a stuffy British guy and... Yeah, I'd know, be interested... They're, they're perfect for to mess with for comedy, I guess. I would imagine that it's probably mimicking some other poster we haven't seen yet. That, like, we'd see for some other movie and be yes. like, oh, okay. Like, they must have it's modeled w- it one after of those something. cases where the parody outlasts the original thing? Yeah, totally. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah. About four years after it was released, a young Howard Ashman caught the movie. He was about 14, 15 years old when he saw it. Thought it was pretty funny. He later says that he'd forgotten about it and then got reminded of it much later. But when he was 16, he wrote a play called The Candy Shop. And it was about a man who fell in love with a flower that had opiate powers. So he's like, oh, when I was 16, I just ripped off Little Shop of Horrors <laughs> and wrote this play called Candy Shop. So it was in his mind, which is so nice when I found that out and in some other details, just because I knew that the 50s were ripe for parody, that Grease was already a hit and so was Rocky Horror. And I just had this sort of like vision of these creative people just going through a catalog and having really no love for the original source material and just saying like, well, what's not copywritten that we can make into the next play to cash in on these 1950s era sci-fi satires, Mm -hmm. not Grease, but Rocky Horror or, you know, where's our science fiction double feature. Right. But that is uh, much less the case. And I was very super pleased to find that out. So Howard Ashman and a producer, uh, Rennick, who saw it when he was in college, they're working for and running the WPA Theater in New York. This is in like the late 70s, early 80s. And they do a musical adaptation of Kurt Vonnegut's God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, which I don't know if that was particularly comical or I haven't read that book. I'm going to guess like other Vonnegut, it's got funny parts, but it's kind of a head trip. It was a hit at the WPA Theater, which was like a 92-seat theater where they would kind of test stuff out, and if it does well, maybe it could move into a larger theater. But when they moved the Rosewater play into a larger theater, it just kind of tanked. So it says here, we were both, I'm reading from an article, we were both depressed. We decided the next show we worked on would have to be something that was fun. And that's when he remembered about that play, the ripoff that he tried to write. Even though they didn't have to have to, because there was no copyright on it, they still, like, set up a deal with Corman. So, Howard Ashman did the lyrics, but Menken, Alan Menken, did the music. He hadn't seen the film, he hadn't seen Little Shop of Horrors, but, like, a week after they just tried to get him on board, it it came on TV, and they, like, taped it and showed it to him, he's like, oh, perfect, great, we'll do a 60s sound, 
And then someone was like, well, make the Greek chorus a three-part girl group. Mm -hmm. They brought in Martin Robinson. Um, Martin Robinson worked for Jim Henson. On Sesame Street, he did Telly Monster and Stuffleupagus. Come on, bird, let's go to the park. He was making uh, some real money. Puppeteers, it's not, a, it's not a get rich kind of a profession. But he was making decent money and now he could dedicate his time to this like play that like wouldn't pay him any money, but he could have all this creative freedom as he created the uh, Audrey 2. I've given you sunshine. I've given you dirt. You've given me nothing but heartache and hurt. He would do Sesame Street during the day, and when the play got big and, like, moved to the Orpheum for its off-Broadway production, it was just, like, Orpheum at night, stuff up against during the day. Mm-hmm. And he would just go between the two. And then when the show came out in 2003, he um, was also involved in that. I've given you potash. You've given me zip. Why do I know so much about this guy, the creator of Audrey 2? Is because Little Shop of Horrors, the whole intellectual property. Mm-hmm. The reason there's so much about it out there, which we keep finding, we just keep finding more and more stuff. Yeah. And like I watched a whole interview with this guy on a puppet-based podcast, is because it attracts so many different passionate People, so like everyone who's like into Roger Corman in the old B movies, they've been digging into this film for a long time. And then people who are into musical theater have been into the play and then the movie. And people who are like into 80s movies and 80s nostalgia have been mining the 80s movie. And And people, puppet people, puppet people, yeah, there's puppet people. Oh, I believe it. (laughs) And these puppet people, um, I'm not a puppet person, and watching the movie made me, like, a puppet person. Right. Because I was like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So, yeah. In today's modern era, these aren't just, like, random names in the closing credits of Sesame Street. Like, they know who these people are, and they find them, and they interview them, and yeah. they find who they worked with, and they're just like, details, details, give it all to me. <laughs> so, it's just this big Venn diagram with this big dark part in the center, which is Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah. By the way, as a brief aside, uh, speaking of like the puppetry and everything in a stage show, knowing what little I knew going into seeing it on stage, I was curious, like, you know, what are they going to do? How do they do this? And there was a little like handheld Audrey 2 at the beginning, like in a little pot. Yeah. And this thing would move and it was amazing because the guy was carrying it around all over the stage. And I was like, okay, there must be someone remote controlling this thing in that form. And then the bigger it got, there was like multiple people controlling individual pieces. It wasn't even like there was one giant puppet that was all attached with arms and tendrils. Mm -hmm. It was like there was a big centerpiece mouth thing that was being controlled. And then there were detached tentacles that were being controlled by individual people in like a black leotard. So you could really see them. And they were like glow in the dark, like black light type situation. Oh, okay, that's cool. Which was very cool, really magical. Well, I don't know for sure about the version you saw, but part of what this uh, fellow, Martin Robinson, helped pioneer. And then when they did it in the 2003, he came back and 
yeah, he wound up using like the same techniques they used back in 1982, which for the part you're talking about was a fake arm. Mm. The uh, Seymour was controlling the cool. smallish Audrey too, while yeah. a fake arm appeared to be holding the well, pot. And that I that I get. But yeah. what was wild about the version I saw is that a hundred percent it wasn't that. Okay, it wasn't I that. would have expect like if it was that, I would have been able to tell because you know you notice there's one arm that you doesn't know, move. The old fake no, arm. this guy was like picking it up, putting it down. So it wasn't even that it was like a thing coming up under the table that was controlled. It wasn't even that because he was moving it, holding mm -hmm. it on either side of his hands, putting it down, and the whole time it's moving. And I was like, oh my God, this thing must be remote controlled. Like, yeah, and I, I suppose that's so. gotta be one of the really exciting and fun challenges of putting on this show on stage. Whatever the means you have, the money, the creativity of like, how do we do this thing? Because this thing has to start off small. It has to talk it has to grow and become huge. Like, how do we do this? Because yeah. you don't want to just do what everyone else has done. You have to figure it out. Now, did you tell me that the voice of Audrey 2 was seen in silhouette? Uh-uh, not seen at all. Oh, not seen at all? Until the curtain. And it oh, okay. was, uh, our, our Audrey 2, when I saw it, was Amber Riley um, from Glee. Okay, so a female. Uh-huh. Doing Audrey 2. Yeah. Which, I don't know when they started doing that. I think potentially the iteration that I saw was trying to be creative with casting because we had a female Audrey too and a trans actress for Audrey. Audrey. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think maybe that was like all that was purposeful. Okay. Um, but Mixing by the way, like A, mm -hmm. I didn't know better with the Audrey too. Like I didn't know it was, that it was traditionally a guy. I right? see. Okay. Um, and then secondly, like... I even hesitated, like, bringing up the fact that it was a trans actress, because who cares? It doesn't matter. And it was totally well, Was it seamless. advertised? Yeah, I mean, I would say that it was advertised in the sense that the actress, MJ Rodriguez, is on Pose. Okay. The show. So it was, yeah. it was I think it was more about it being I mean, like, how did you name. find out? Um, I don't know. But I will note that everybody in that cast was great. The Seymour was really wonderful as well. But yeah, it was specifically Amber Riley being able to come on and just sing her heart out and like not even be on stage at all. Probably being backstage in like her pajamas and then like, <laughs> well, I guess not because she comes out for a curtain call. But <laughs> okay, I was so like, maybe not her pajamas. Maybe not her pajamas. But like what an interesting like job for a while is like, I'm just going to sing and then I'll come out at the end and be like, that was me singing. And she was great. Awesome. She had a lot of like, like, like a lot of gravelly singing that makes a lot of sense now having like seen the movie and, um. Sure. The Audrey 2s that had come before. Feed me. I beg your pardon? Feed me. Toey. Toey. You, you talk. You, you open your, your, your trap, your, your thing. And you said. Feed me, Quailborn. Feed me now. The original voice of Audrey 2 on the stage. Must be blood. Was Ron Taylor. Must be fresh. He's credited in uh, Trading Places as Big Black Guy. Yeesh. I knew exactly who they meant. And well, I saw the picture of him too. He's one of two guys that Eddie Murphy encounters earlier in the film that give him a lot of trouble. It ain't cool being no jive turkey so close to Thanksgiving. So it was great knowing what else he did. Yeah. And... One of the producers, once it came to the Orpheum, was uh, David Geffen. So it was just a matter of time, I think, before this became a movie. And what a movie. Little Shop of Horrors. 
starring Rick Moranis. Will you marry me? Ellen Green. Vincent Gardenia. With a special appearance by Steve Martin, James Belushi, John Candy, Humphrey. Bill Murray. It's a professionalism that I respect. Little Shop of Horrors. They started to court, at some point, Frank Oz. Mm -hmm. Frank Oz had directed The Dark Crystal, which was all puppets, and Muppets Take Manhattan, Hmm. which was at least half puppets, Muppets, as well as years as a performer. But as a director, like, that's what he had under his belt. I am playing 800 different emotions. Well, try to play one of them right. He wasn't so sure he wanted to do No, no, he balked for quite a while. Yeah, because he couldn't figure it out. Like, how, how he would do it. And his way in yeah. were the three, like, Greek chorus ladies. Ladies. For him, he was like, they're the key. If I can figure out how I'm going to do them, then I can do this movie. And I thought that yeah. was really interesting. Well, and, and when he figured it out was that he didn't have to treat them. In, I, I don't know about the version you watched, but just in the script for the play, they're just, like, three, like, street girls, and they don't dress up. In like fancy outfits. Yeah, the and play then, version I saw, they were very like kind of casual, urban Yeah, and while they are the Greek scrappy. chorus, they won't all of a sudden be like nurses in, in the dentist office. Uh-huh. And then now they're like typists in the typing pool. And now they're not just, uh, this is Frank Oz's word, he could bop them. Uh-huh. He could bop them up on a, up here, and then yeah. he could change them down here. Which does the thing you talked about, which is like heightening the story. Like uh, that's the story. one element of how you heighten the And the first setting. number during the opening credits... He has them in the rain, but they don't get wet. Yeah. Which is... It's cool. This girl group is... They later are shown in their, like, street urchin. That's how they're described. Mm-hmm. Where... And you can see them in the background sometimes, just kind of looking like that. And they'll yeah. sort of interact with the characters. They're not always these sort of otherworldly mm-hmm. singers. Sometimes they'll just interact as characters, which is what they do a lot more of in the yeah. play. Which I do want to sidebar for a second. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a good opportunity to do that. What occurred to me, not really when seeing it as a play, but really when seeing it as a movie. Because this movie is a tour de force, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, yeah. Like, I had never Which seen it. Which you had never seen. No. I saw it when it came to cable in 87. I had never seen it, and I can't think of any moment or character or actor or song or shot that's not kind of perfect. Like, I think it's so well-directed, everybody in it's so good, but I think because the movie just hit me so hard, because that, full disclosure, like... This isn't necessarily my favorite, like, IP we've ever covered. I thought the stage show when I saw it was really enjoyable, but, like, it didn't I, I just I wanted to get this out did. while it was still fresh with you. Yeah, for sure. But I did not go into the movie musical expecting to, like, feel so viscerally, like, delighted by it. But I really was. But the movie kind of slapped me across the face. I was like, holy shit. And maybe it's because of the heightened direction and all of it. But it really, the the sort of themes of like, I started being like, whoa, man, the American dream, am I right? Capitalism and, you know, how far will you go to like... Especially in the original ending, which we'll get to later. Yes. And because we have Seymour who in these, as you mentioned before, it's not really in the first one, but in the musical and then the movie musical, he is like... Mr. Mushnick, the backstories that he took him in, but like mm-hmm. kind of mistreated him a little. Like the song tells you that yeah. he like 
like it's and he kind calls of, me a slob, which yeah, I am. Yeah, so it's like you have both he and Audrey are these like kind of sad characters. She's in an abusive relationship. Yeah. He's kind of this orphan who gets kind of mad. He's like, I get every other Sunday off, and it's like, oh geez. But the whole reason I brought this up now is because you're talking about this chorus of girls who do appear in their, like, regular street clothes when they're not in their, like, Ronettes outfits. Mm -hmm. And Mr. Motionick's like, go to school, make something of yourself. And they're like, there ain't no such thing when you're from Skid Row, right? That sets up the song Skid Row. Yes. And I guess I just, if you're listening and you care to, there are more than one kind of, like, academic deep dive kind of analyses to be found online if you look up, like... The American Dream, Little Shop of Horrors. Like, you'll find people have written articles that are interesting about gentrification, people of color, capitalism, America, like, all of that stuff. And I think it's interesting because for whatever reason, you know, once this property became the juggernaut that it became, Mm -hmm. now people, like, are writing academic-minded articles about it. But, like, it just goes to show you that when you make a piece of art, like Roger Corman just making a movie that he hoped would be entertaining that people would pay to see because he's trying to make some money. Mm -hmm. It's no longer yours. And it was just like a kitschy idea they had. He and Charles Griffith or whatever. And and going back, just real quick, it's part of the legend that it was a bet. I could never find who the bet was with. Mm -hmm. I don't really believe it was a bet or even a dare particularly, except for mostly just a bet Corman had with himself to see if he could break his old record. Right. His record was six days. Let's do it in two. Right. And that silly bet movie, quick, we're doing Personal this Personal challenge. Becomes this thing that, like, people are sitting and writing articles about and going, like, you know, what does this say about this? You know? Uh-huh. And I love that. It's, like, it's no longer yours to decide, you know, like, it becomes this other thing and it means different things to different people. That's also, like just a fun movie yeah you know like Mm -hmm. it it is both of those things at the same time later the duo of ashman and Mencken would go on to basically save disney i think that's a fairly agreed upon assessment of like once they hopped in around a little mermaid and just started turning things around that was uh over there that was my movie yeah i that's the first movie i remember seeing in theaters oh mermaid it's so good later it was just Mencken went into Hercules. So if you watch Hercules, you might be like, this is kind of familiar. Mm-hmm. The literal Greek chorus right. being portrayed as like a 60s type Motown, I'll just say. I need to watch Girl I group. And that's the girl's bull true. They hop right off the urn and nice. just sing about Hercules through the whole film. So it's like, well, I've seen this before. Yeah. And people say that, like, somewhere that's green is basically um, part of your world. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. I know Seymour's the greatest, but I'm dating a semi-sadist. Somewhere that's green, the song, which is... We take a moment with Audrey, who's kind of lamenting her life and the fact that she's in an abusive relationship. And we haven't even... We haven't even talked about the dentist. Matt, even in the movie. We don't even know that he's a dentist. Right. We just know he's a professional. Yeah. Isn't that what she calls him? Yeah. Yeah. But this was the 80s, and it was you know mid-80s by the time the movie came out, but especially when the play was out, it was the time when, as a culture, we would really stick it to the 50s. Mm-hmm. You know? 
It's like, oh, remember the 50s with their materialism and their plastic on the furniture and their automatic dishwasher? And you can take any approach you want of just like, ah, oh, consumerism. Or you can just sort of laugh about it as just like tackiness. Sure, sure. But, Which like, I don't know, it's like 80s, 50s pot meat kettle. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. If we're talking about consumerism. But I see well, let's just say it, it was all part of the larger fascination yeah. with it. In different hands, that whole summer that's green sequence could have just been like cheesy and winky and not heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And this is why I'm like, this is a perfect movie because they are sending up the whole like ideal of the 50s mm -hmm. of, you know, she's fantasizing about C Cook like plastic. Betty Crocker. Yeah. She's fantasizing about TV dinners and plastic on the furniture and all these things that seem like just kind of hacky commercialism things. We can watch it simultaneously for that and laugh at that. You're laughing, mm -hmm. but also there's like tears behind your eyes because you feel for this person. Just, just give that one a toaster. And you want I want her, her to have the toaster. You want it for her. You want her to have the plastic furniture. You want you want her and Seymour to like make it happen. Yeah. You know? It's oh. now go watch But try being cynical to someone who has nothing about how, like, you know, plastic on the furniture. Yeah. Would you a sheep or a purse? You know, like the whole. Right. It's like, no, I'm you know, poor. Why don't you just march with all of the uh, the other mindless drones out to the suburbs? That sounds That'd great. That'd be nice. When yeah, you have, I love when you're, that. When you're on Skid Row and she just looks at a Better Homes and Gardens magazine and just imagines all of these things that she could have and be happy among and the centerpiece of which is to be with Seymour. Yeah. And that the two of them could have their TV dinners. And beautiful children. One of each. And if you watch, in the fantasy, she has like this black and white Cocker Spaniel. Mm. And in her apartment in Skid Row, she has a stuffed oh. black and white Cocker Spaniel that she like that. hugs. Just to compliment Ellen Green, who originated the role on stage. Yeah. How exciting to be called upon to yeah to... in the major motion picture. Right? So exciting. And the character is very like this. Yeah. Oh, Seymour. You know? Yeah, but she doesn't drop the character when she sings. She then sings as that character. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to like the real belted out emotional parts of, let's just say, Suddenly Seymour... Mm -hmm. She doesn't drop the character so she can bring out the big guns. No, but she does sing from a different place in her register, I think, on purpose in that okay. song. But, and I even heard her talk in, in an interview where she says that Seymour brings out a part of her character that otherwise okay. isn't brought out. So I think you can tell in Suddenly sure. Seymour that like there is some belting that's very that's, I think, different from her normal voice. Okay. But it's because she's, you know, feeling alive. Yeah. Happy for once. She's very good. It's so difficult. And I feel like that's part of the reason they felt like she was the only person who could really do it on screen 
is that it's so tough to ride that line between being funny and campy, which she is, and mm -hmm. also being really sympathetic and really caring about the character. To have somebody who's like, oh, Seymour, what do you think? Like, for to have a cartoon voice like that, but still manage to be real and have people care about you, it's yeah. like, whoa, that is no easy task. Excuse me, I couldn't help noticing that strange and interesting plant. What is it? It's an archery, too. I've never seen anything like it before. No one has. It's actually Audrey who says, you know, if we put a strange and unusual plan out, maybe the customers will come. And as soon as it comes out, in comes Christopher Guest. Oh, my God. Mushnick's like, that'll never work. And he goes, excuse me? Yeah. That's a quite a strange and unusual plant. Oh, God. So and, funny. And Guest, who, who, would, who would just come in kind of into the middle of this, didn't know how big he should play it. And then after a while, figured out just how heightened this movie was. So he played it really big. What an unusual plant. It's so tonally perfect. I'll buy so $50 funny. of roses. Yeah, and he's like, can you break 100 And he's like, oh, no. And he's like, oh, I guess I'll just have to buy twice as many roses. Exactly. Oh, God, it's so funny. Such a good movie. Now, this was all filmed in England in the largest soundstage. Mm-hmm. The 007 stage, wow. which they call it because it was made for, like, one of the 007 movies. I'm picturing a submarine. What a handsome craft. Such lovely lines. And it's been used for just expansive, big productions. Some of your favorites are all in these giant British sound stages, in which they built this sort of real but hyper-real skid row. Mm. And when Frank Oz was adapting the stage show into a, a movie he kept it kind of contained he sent them out into the radio station whereas previously you only heard the radio station mm -hmm. he said i really wanted to keep it as contained as possible sure i would send the characters out into the world but only when it was absolutely necessary for them to go out yeah and mostly stayed contained yeah. just like the show which does make it feel heightened in that way you can tell when something is a set like the Skid Row set versus like them filming on location on the street. And it like, it's so much better for it. And then when the monster starts being a monster, it's like, you can buy it because you're already in this world. It's the world's rules. Yes. It's not the real world's rules. Feed me, crab on, feed me now. Uh, I can't. I'm starving. Look, maybe I can squeeze a little more out of this one. More, 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 more. There isn't any more. What do you want me to do, slip my wrists? <sighs> Meanwhile, Seymour has made... This kept coming up. A Faustian deal. Mm -hmm. He has made a deal with the devil. Which Frank Oz felt very strongly about that aspect of it. He was like, well, when and you make a Faustian deal, there's only one way this is going to end. Yes. Which is how he ended his movie. Yes, but. But. We'll get to that when it comes to, we'll, we'll talk about the ending. Yeah. Feed me Seymour. Feed me all night long. That's right, boy. So... The plant talks. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. But uh, the plant to talk, because this was what I've heard described as the last of the great rubber monsters before CGI really started taking over. It can only articulate at a certain speed. You know, it's, it's got a lot of people behind, a lot of puppeteers. <laughs> you eat blood, Audrey, too. Let's face it. How am I supposed to keep on feeding you? Kill people? I make it worth your while. What? The footage in the stuff you sent me of the people running that puppet yeah. is bonkers. And? Then they say like up to 50 people at a time. And like it's like 
12 people are on different levers and 12 people are like moving and everybody's doing it all at once. Crazy. And for the people, well, Rick Moranis and I, I guess to some extent Ellen Green, I've been hanging on to this fact for years. Like I caught a special feature on the DVD when it first came out, I think, was the fact that, and I'll never get over this, and when, when I decided to do this as a podcast episode, I was like, I can share this fact because it's really all I went into this really knowing for sure, which is the Audrey 2 could only move so fast and still articulate like mm-hmm. a speaking mouth. Mm-hmm. Not to mention all the other stuff it has to do. It could only go at sort of half speed. So if you were filming it, you had to film it and then speed it up and mm-hmm. then it would match the movements, which also meant that Rick Moranis when he was in a shot, also singing, either to or with the plant, he had to act, react, and sing, and sing and act, because uh, one of the shots that's him in the plant is when he starts getting angry and singing, singing angry. And he's like, he sure looks like plant food to me. He sure looks like plant food to me. He is doing all of that at half speed. Yeah. He's got to, like, emote. Yeah. And... Lip sync. Yeah. Because it's not really singing. At half speed. That's all. That's crazy to me. Yeah. The only other place I'd sort of been exposed to that idea is like when I would watch on MTV, they do making the video. And I remember watching some of these singers like do dance and singing for like a dance sequence, doing it at double speed so that then they could like be moving in slow motion singing it. And, right? And still hit the beats. Exactly. But... To me, it feels like it's got to be so much harder to do it at half speed. Yes. To then speed it to up. To hold like, the expression. To, to do it, to like do a dance routine and lip sync at double speed, well, you just got to go really fast. And then you look super cool when they slow it down. Uh-huh. But trying to do it the other way is like... Yeah. And there was just a little bit of footage like, like, like how of f- them operating that plant oh. in that special at half speed. And you can hear... Um, and they're all like feverishly moving this thing. Yeah. And it lip syncs almost perfectly. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. I do not understand how they did what they did in this movie. Te- technical Marvel and Mr. Rick Moranis acting Marvel. Yeah, that aspect of it. I can't even begin it, to control. It didn't even occur to me watching him in any moment of that movie. Like nothing he did seemed unnatural, which means he was doing that pitch perfectly. Yeah. What? Like, uh, I'm not great. saying they got it all in the first take or even the tenth take. Yeah. Necessarily. But uh, by the time they got there. Yeah. Holy smokes. What a marvel. And if I express nothing else in this podcast, I really want the world to know what they did and what Rick Moranis did. Wow. See, don't I know you? Yeah, Seymour Crowbone. We met yesterday. Oh, your mouth's a mess, kid. Oh, the... wisdom to oh, We'll just rip that little bugger right out of there. What do you say? No, I mean... There's always time for dental hygiene, Seymour. But then, all right, he's got to go out and find a... I mean, it's pointed out by Audrey, too. He's got to go out and find some human blood in the form of Audrey's abusive boyfriend, played by Steve Martin. And if you're watching this completely cold, and I don't know how it was revealed to you on the stage, mm. and I had to sort of take myself out of it because I knew just from probably just the commercials that he was a dentist. So when he takes off his jacket and bursts into the office and finally says, Cause I'm a dentist. Yeah. But that was a reveal. Oh, it was a reveal and, on stage as well. And I had absolutely no idea. No idea. Wow. And it landed so hard. On me, I cackled. 
I really like because they do all this lead up in the song before that where he's like my Cat mama Wells. told me last person to know last person to know but he's talking about how his mom told him because he would like strangle kittens and do and torture yeah. animals and stuff that he would find a way to put that to use and then that reveal I promise you hand to god I did not know that joke I did not know he was going to be a dentist let alone an insane psychopathic dentist addicted to laughing gas like all of that stuff I was like what am I watching which made it all the more exciting than when I watched the movie knowing that Steve Martin played that character uh-huh. and added and, sort of like an Elvis-ish oh yeah which was his idea yeah but also knowing from seeing the 60 version that there's a character the Jack Nicholson character who comes in who like yeah. a character who loves pain and wants to come to the dentist to get hurt a masochist. And Jack Nicholson was very funny and weird and giggly. I did not know who that actor was going to be, and I didn't think about it beforehand in the musical movie. Movie musical? Wow. Didn't know. Oh, mama. So when Bill Murray showed up, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I've been saving all month for this. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. What? This movie's just chock-a-block full of, like, amazing people. But, yeah, I did not know Bill Murray was going to... And how they managed to make, like, Bill Murray's character is so different from the, like, Jack Nicholson and, character. And he wasn't in the play. Delightfully. When it was no. originally done. So and it he wasn't in the one I saw either. improvised all that stuff. They were just like, be a weirdo who likes pain. It's so weird. Because that's the only thing that can get it under the skin of the sadist. Right. Oh, come on, doctor. Woo! Yeah. Oh, great. Oh... You are something special. You are something special. Come on, come on, come on. Mm, Thank you! Back to Jack Nicholson doing that part. Yeah. It's a little different. He'd already killed the dentist who was not dating Audrey in the 1960 version. Mm. All right, Seymour. Stay away from me. Seymour, you're trying to kill me. A duel! Aha! He went in because he had a toothache. Yeah. And he's just with a mad dentist. Who then wants to, like, sword fight with him. So then you're like, okay, maybe this guy deserves to die. He's a weirdo. He is a weirdo. Uh, that sword fight, if you ask me, was, like, pure Marx Brothers. Huh. He's like, ah, we're going to sword fight now. And like, I guess they're sword fighting with dental equipment. Yeah. Uh, and then he bumps his head, and that's where he gets his next victim. But then in, in comes Jack Nicholson, who had already done a movie for Roger Corman called The Crybaby Killer. And it didn't do that well. Mm. So now he was getting this, like, hard-earned second chance. And just really wanted to deliver and in my opinion just do like the opposite of the crybaby killer which was like like a juvenile delinquent so he was going like way the other direction and in a dark comedy of that era all you had to do was just sort of mention taboos i think in the sure. context of a comedy and that would make it funny yeah so he just went i'm a mortician <laughs> and he didn't do any mortician jokes but just the fact that he was a mortician in a comedy yeah i think like inherently made it funny yeah you know most people don't like to go to the dentist, but I rather enjoy it myself, don't you? <laughs> I mean, there's such, there's a real feeling of growth, of, of <laughs> progress when that, that old drill goes in. I mean, I'd almost rather go to the dentist than anywhere, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> now, no Novocaine. It dulls the senses. <laughs> this is gonna hurt you more than it is me. Oh, goody, goody, here it comes. And he's reading Pain Magazine, and he's it does get kind of sexual. Yeah, a little like, bit. Don't stop now. Yes, yes. But compared to the but Bill Murray stuff, the, it's so tame. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally. The dentist was already dead, so it's actually Seymour who doesn't know what he's doing pretending to be the dentist. Yeah. 
And then the gag is he like removes all of his teeth and he's like, I'm going to recommend you to all my friends. <laughs> and that's the last that we see of him. And now it's Bill Murray's turn. And he's like kind of upped the sexual satisfaction of it all. Oh, yeah. Which is something I didn't catch as much when I was a kid. Oh, boy. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, as an adult, I was I, like, I was just Whoa. like, what a weirdo. Yeah. He was like, oh, candy bar, candy bar. I'm going to get a candy bar. He's so good. God, he's so funny. It's so weird. Oh, 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 Don't stop. Don't stop. Come on. More. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. And then just on the topic of there's so much about this movie and the play and there's so much out there, folks. Sorry, we were only delivering you a percentage of fun facts. I was watching it. I was watching the dentist scene and I was like, you know what? All those dental tools look familiar. Let me do a little Google search here. And they were the same horrifying tools that uh, were in Batman. The Jack Nicholson Batman. Has this been verified? Or is it just like, this stuff looks like... They look exactly... Well, there's that one thing... I mean, can we be sure they are the exact same I'll I'll say this. Both films were made in England three years apart. Uh Uh-huh. So they're probably, you know, sitting in the prop department. Then, Wheels Within Wheels, I'm like, oh, yeah... Jack Nicholson. So mm-hmm. he's he's back in the chair. Yeah. And now they're using the instruments from the 86 version. And if you look at the photos side by side, which I, they do I look sent you. just the same. And more than one of them looks yeah. identical. Yeah. So why wouldn't they be? You understand that the nerves were completely severed, Mr. Napier. <laughs> so they made another appearance in cool. Batman as the plastic surgeon's like, look what I have to work with. It's yeah. this horrifying massive torture devices and as a kid i know that you were busy getting your hair blown back as an adult watching this for the first time yeah to me watching an early horror film in a sense Mm -hmm. to put into that horror film as kind of one of the villains a dentist oh god well that fits yeah you've got a list of fears and somewhere on there is the dentist yes and add on to that like that whole scene, as funny as it was, the you'll be a dentist, I'll be a dentist stuff, the, like, shots from inside the mouth with the, like, wiggly lips and the big fat teeth, yeah. I didn't like. Those made me really uncomfortable. And then when he'd, like, pull the drill out and go in, yeah. I was like, Ugh. They don't make them like this anymore. Yeah. No. I was not excited about watching that. Like, I kind of wanted to turn away. And I'm not particularly afraid of the dentist. Like, I don't have a phobia. But I don't like going and getting my teeth scraped, even under the mm-hmm. best of circumstances. It's unpleasant. Yeah. It's just not fun. I'm going to want some gas for this. Oh, thank God. I thought you weren't going to use any. Oh, the gas isn't for you, Seymour. It's for me. And also, just a moment for the design of, like, Steve Martin's getup. His, like... His apparatus? The mask. The, like, weird little balloons that gothic. are inflating. And get- yes, it's upsetting. It yeah. is gothic. It's so weird. Ugh. Like, it's... The, the range of emotions I felt watching all of that stuff, the dentist stuff was so complicated because it's like Steve Martin is so funny and the situations are so funny. Bill Murray is so funny. Everyone's at the top of their game, but at the same time, I was just like uncomfortable by it all. It's like really dark. And he dies. But really funny. Yeah. That's now, Seymour doesn't kill him, but he doesn't save him either. Yeah. And he's there to kill him. He's got the gun, but, yeah. you know. So for the horror of it all, because it is after all a little shop of horrors, mm-hmm. they did have body parts made up to be fed to Audrey too. Yeah. I think including... Steve Martin's head. Yeah. 
But they found that when it you know came down to it, all they needed was his boot. He has like a motorcycle boot. And everything else is just sort of wrapped in individual bits yeah. of newspaper. Yeah. Now you do see Seymour like with the axe, like ready to do it. And then you see it in silhouette. You see Mr. Mushnik's reaction when he catches him doing it. Yeah. But all you really see as far as body parts is a boot with a presumable foot. And that's, that's all they needed. Yeah. Because this is, I don't know if they were trying to make a family film, but when you got a giant puppet. You got to know mu- kids are going to be drawn to it. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. So definitely has a little shop, definitely has some horror, but they didn't yeah. have to lean too hard into at least gore. Mm-hmm. But speaking of effects, when that plant opens its mouth, oh yeah, like that's not a real thing. But if I were to be faced with a giant man-eating plant, that's what I think the inside of its mouth would look like. It totally. definitely looked like a plant. Yes. It just intuitively looked like, yeah. What it should. Totally. Then suddenly Seymour, mm. after turns out the dentist is dead, she no longer has her abusive boyfriend. And he's like, well, is it so bad? She's like, I guess not. Yeah, because suddenly Seymour is standing beside me. Yeah. Wash off your mascara. Here, take my Kleenex. Wipe that lipstick away. Personal note, I never saw this as a play like you mm. did. But I was out for an evening of karaoke here in Los Angeles several years ago. And a man and woman got up to sing Suddenly Seymour. And they were so good. I was like, man, they must be in like a local production or something. Turns out, uh, the guy anyways, Seth MacFarlane. Wow. Just putting on a show for anybody there to see. And you didn't realize it was him? Not immediately. But I was just like, look at this guy go. And her, like whoever he was with. The two of them. I can't believe you got to see him sing that live. For no more than the price of a Diet Coke. Yep. He's here to provide you sweet understanding. So yeah, Suddenly Seymour, one of the, the great tunes. Yeah, yeah, a lot of uh, great tunes. One of the great duets, mm-hmm. I'd say. Yeah. Moving on to Supper Time, which is, I think, uh, the Greek chorus, the girls, the urchins, mm-hmm. kind of at their best. Yeah, they're great throughout, um, but yeah. They, they are great throughout, but like, they're not just there to be cheerleaders. They're there to, you know, for the bad times, too. Yep. They're there to be like, it's supper time, supper time. Yeah. They see everything that's going on. And Seymour kind of tricks Mr. Mushnick, who is trying to blackmail him. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. So it's like, he's not a great guy either. There's a little bit of moral failing going on on a lot of fronts here. Yeah. So Mushnick dies. The plant just gets bigger. Money's still coming in. Seymour's actually getting famous. Yeah. As like this great botanist who made this unusual, huge plant. Yeah, people are trying to give him like a TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah they brought in cameras and everything. Yeah. By the way, in the stage version I saw, there was like a song slash montage telling you how he was having all this press and all these people who wanted him to sign all these contracts. Uh-huh. And the guy who played the dentist, who was dead, yeah. that actor in the play played all these different characters so he would run off stage and quick quick change like into something else hat. he'd be a lady he'd be a dude and oh. it was like he was like a rotating cast of those characters and it was really funny he was very good at it oh that's good yeah, that's how they did that good 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 um but now he just wants to run away with audrey yeah and get married yeah but audrey too has other plans we in mind also we haven't sung the praises of 
Levi Stubbs. Levi Stubbs and how amazing of the four tops of the four tops, which is how he's credited. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean it's a selling point. I mean, to be fair, when I read that, had I heard his name before? No. But when it said of the four tops, I said, "Whoa, of the four tops!" Like yeah. I was impressed. So, but he's so fantastic. He's so good. So go get it. My favorite pose of Audrey Two, the plant, is indignant. Mm. Which is in the small version when he offers him his finger with no blood. He's got a bloody finger and he's yeah. got no bloody finger. Yeah. He's sort of testing it, and he's like, yeah, it kind of turns away. He kind away. of tucks in his little lips yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And then once it's the Levi Stubbs giant Audrey yeah. too, says, maybe I can go and get you some chopped steak. And he goes, don't do me no favors. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, he's very funny. Yeah. He's so it's funny. not all threatening, and it's not all seductive no. either, but there's plenty of both. Yes. When he, he then tries to like get Audrey to come over. Oh, Yeah. He like, calls her on the phone. Calls her on the phone. And that, that's a whole production. <laughs> he's got to get like, got to get the quarter out of the machine, and pull himself over. Yeah. And she comes over and he he tries to eat her, and okay, so theatrical version. Yeah. He tries to eat her. He doesn't succeed. Jim Belushi shows up as like a salesman and goes, "Why, if you sign with me, we can put Audrey twos in every home in America." Yeah. And he's like, oh, "That's the plan all along." Uh huh. You wait here, Audrey. I gotta go clean up my mess. And, you know, which is having let Audrey 2 get as far as it has. And then he goes, and that's when you get Mean Green Mother. But yeah. at the end of the day, Seymour rallies and defeats the plant. Mm-hmm. And then basically they get to go into their fantasy. They're somewhere that's green dream house. It pans down and you see a tiny Audrey 2 in among the flowers. And that's the end of the movie. So it's mm-hmm. like, the end? Question mark. Question so you mark? get a happy ending, but you also get... Um, a, little, a little twist. Yeah. Which, by the way, that ending is different from the play yeah, and, the and from the original ending of the movie, which I'm sure we'll talk about right now. When I told you that I was almost done watching the original movie, you brought up to me the idea of um, different endings. And I was like, okay. So I was trying to be mindful of that. And I was trying to remember what I saw on stage. And, like, I don't have the greatest memory. And I was like, what did happen? But then when I saw the 86 version, when I saw the alternate ending, I remembered that. The alternate ending that they filmed first. That they filmed first. That that was... That was like a fifth of their budget. The consequence of a Faustian bargain. The way that Frank Oz wanted it because it was the way it was on stage. But I remembered that, yes, on stage, it's the same song in the in the original ending of the musical movie, where the chorus sings that song subsequent to the events you have just witnessed, yeah. similar events in cities across, um, across America. Like, I'm sure you'll play this here. But, um, don't I feed rem- the plants. Is don't the feed song. the plants. So I remembered that on the, in the stage show, I was having this visual when I heard that. I was like, oh, right. They were doing this weird, like, shadow puppet theater to tell oh. that story. So... You saw, like, the actors who had played the, like, tentacles and the big Audrey II head were holding up a bunch of little plants. They were showing, like, Were they like, eating cities? Yeah. Okay. So there would be, like, a silhouette of a city. I don't want to call it Shadow Puppet. It's like there were, like, paper. It was, like, two-dimensional representations of cities and fire and plants and, like, okay. people. So they told that story to that music. But that was the end was... You know, Audrey Did ends they... up getting killed. Seymour ends up getting killed. And then they tell that prologue. 
I don't know if Don't Feed the Plants was a part of it, but definitely, probably. That's the name of the song. Yeah. Did they drop vines on the audience? No. That's what they did in its original run. Whoa. They would drop at the, at the very end. They're like, don't feed the plants. And then they drop vines. Fun. Like out of like boxes on the ceiling. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. But what happened is they tested the movie well, with audiences. What happens in the movie, the ending, which it's its own DVD. It's mm. not just a special feature on other DVDs. Like you can just watch it as is. So up until almost the ending, it's the same exact film. Yeah. But then turns out when Audrey was being eaten, she was mortally wounded. Finds out the truth, asks Seymour to feed her to the plant. That way she'll be somewhere that's green and be able to help him achieve his dreams mm -hmm. very slow scene of him putting audrey yeah. into audrey 2 yeah and the plant closing yeah it's way less funny than i thought it was going to be once i saw it yeah and then he goes up to a rooftop to presumably jump off where paul dooley because later they couldn't get him back because they got jim belushi so the yeah. paul dooley version he's like hey we can put audrey 2s uh, in every household and he's like what that was his plan all along. So he goes back down to fight, but dies in the process. Yeah. And then you get the subsequent to the events you have seen. Yeah. And you got a long, like 10 minute long. I was not prepared for that. Which I think if audiences had been on board for it, it would have still gotten cut down just for time. Sure. Because that just kept going. It kept going. But now for the director's cut, let's see it all. Let it ride. Which is... They, they spent... Didn't they spend, a, like, most of the movie's money on... A fifth of the budget. A fifth of the budget, which is an insane of, portion on this really cool sequence of the plants just, like, Godzilla-style, like, destroying the city. Yeah. And, and stomping and different on cars cities. and knocking down, you know, being, like, the Statue of Liberty and, and all and, that. And it starts with, with what looks like what we now know to be, like, a Black Friday rush. Mm -hmm. It was just all these people just, like, storming in to buy Audrey 2s. Yeah. And then, yeah, they start, like, bursting through walls and coming down city streets. And the and army like, tries to... Don't feed the plants! And it's just this long, long, long musical sequence. Long, eating of, trains. Yeah. There's more than one giant Audrey II. There's biggest skyscrapers. Yeah. One's on the Statue of Liberty. And it is a parody of the sci-fi movies that wasn't little shop of horrors mm -hmm. at the time yeah. you were sort of mant style films yeah you're uh the beginning of the end mm -hmm. giant whatever's giant bugs giant grasshoppers mm -hmm. taking over cities your japanese films your gorgons yeah it was a, a real parody of things of that time just like the doo-wop singers were really of the time I'm going to go pro-theatrical ending. The one that they ended between, up releasing? Yeah. Yeah, for For a few sure. reasons. Because, one, although it looked great, it was sort of an ending for a different film. Like we were talking about with how he kept everything very contained within Skid Row. Yeah. As a rule. And then it just gets opened up to the whole world. Yeah. It just felt, you know, it's very... Yeah. It's like, and now we're on the moon. Yeah. What? Yeah. Thank you for agreeing with me yeah. so much. Also, yes, it was a Faustian agreement, but it was between 
Seymour and the plant, not the plant and the whole world. Right. So if that's the ending to the Faustian agreement, now him dying and Audrey dying, that would be. Totally. But for the era that it came out and the age that I was at the time, what it did give us was what was a very popular message, and I think still is, which is the just be yourself, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. which is what I took away from it. It was like, hey, just be yourself. And the girl like you. Yeah. Also clean up your mess. You've yeah. created this monster. Now you got to kill it. Right. Sure. He never got his comeuppance for the murder of a couple of people. But call that the misadventures on the way to just being yourself. You ain't got to kill that dentist. Yeah. Well, Audrey already likes you. I also liked what Frank Oz said in that interview that you sent me. Which is something he realized because the movie tested horribly with yeah, that they got like giant 13%. ending. It was very bad. He said, you know, we'd watch people laugh and clap and laugh all the way through the movie. And then it was just quiet as a tomb yeah. right at the end when Seymour and Audrey are dying. And he said, one thing I learned, he said, because I hadn't directed a ton of films at this point. Like he directed mm-hmm. like two movies. He said, I realized that in theater, like on a stage, if the characters die... Then they come out and take a bow, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. In a movie, when they die, they're dead. And he said it's just that much more real. And he just underestimated how much the audience would love Seymour and Audrey. And he said that he kind of underestimated the power of the close-up. Yeah. And that if you have these actors being so sympathetic and likable, and then you kill them. He said it just, it became really clear that, like, we couldn't do that. Like, audiences were going to be so upset about it. And And he was right. I feel similarly, um, the Army of Darkness ending. Mm-hmm. It works better where he doesn't wake up in an apocalypse, but continues on as a character. Yeah. Also, Spies Like Us, which came out like that year or the next year, its original ending was they accidentally start World War Three and like the world blows up. Yeesh. And I'm sure that's great on paper. Wasn't that a comedy? It was. Ugh. What got released was them having an idea and then saving the day. Mm. But on paper, and how they originally filmed it was World War III. Yes. Whoops. Oh, boy. But, you know, that's when it's just, like, on paper, and you haven't gotten into the collaborative art of having actors come in and making characters you care about. Yeah. Giving them dimension, literally. hmm So, or maybe I'm just a big softy with, with all these things. things can be true. But do check out that original ending, people, because it is a masterwork of special effects, of the old rubber monsters, of models and sets. And at the end, it bursts through, like, a movie screen. Like, that's its big finish. It, like, comes through a movie screen. And laughs. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, we were kind of robbed of seeing that in a theater, of even having the option to see in a theater, which is a shame, because coming through a movie screen, how how awesome would that have been? had that thought, too. Yeah. For all the feels, I'll stick with the original ending. Yeah. But for the spectacle of it all. I'm glad it exists. I had fun yeah. watching that. I was Give like, this option. is crazy. They say it had to be tracked down. Like that the original work print got mm-hmm. destroyed. Yeah. So they had to go back to the negative and redo it all. Yep. Now this was Warner Brothers' most expensive film. I don't know when they ever recouped their costs. But now, like the 2015 or whenever it was that they released it, Warner Brothers was on the ball enough to not just stick it out as a special feature. And not just be like, eh, take what we give you. But they actually invested in the restructuring of it and adding music that wasn't there before and sounds that they never... To give even... you the ability to really watch the movie as it originally... Yeah. Because yeah. I've, I've seen some director's cuts and you can tell when the footage yeah. gets put in because it's like a different 
It's like, not been like, color corrected. It's not like yeah. Yeah. It's just they're just like it's just like yeah, take it and shut up. You can sort of imagine what it would be. It's like they're like no with this yeah. one they really. So thank you, Warner away. Brothers. Yeah. Thank you, Frank Oz. Thank you, Howard Ashman. Hmm. Thank you, uh, Mencken. Definitely. Thank you, Roger Corman and Charles Griffith and everybody uh, in between. The Little Shop of Horrors, a success, I think, by now, financially. I think ultimately, yeah. Roger Corman realized that he had the best possible version of the 1960, or he could have it if he just remembered where he put it. A big search went out for like a good, clean version of it because there was all these like blech versions being just like put out on home video with Jack Nicholson's face real big, or any version, just trying to capitalize on the movie itself or on the musical that's now you know a hit so they went back to the film lab and found like a copy there turns out that's where it was and that was not easy to find because they just have these like expansive archives but it its sound had kind of deteriorated so then they had to find the sound and it was labeled on a fading sticker almost couldn't read it Something called Passionate People Eater. <laughs> it was labeled under its original title, Deep in the Bowels of the Storage Facility. So they got the original sound and they got the original print. So the best print you can get if you want to go back and watch the 1960s is the Roger Corman like sanctioned product because he had the best copy available. The first year I ever uh, watched the Oscars, when I was like first getting interested in film, was a heck of an Oscars, because that was the year, broadcast in 92, uh, so it was all the films from 91, mm-hmm. when Silence of the Lambs Oof. got all the awards, got like Best Picture, Director, Actor, Actress, mm-hmm. Screenplay, like it got five Oscars, huge. Best song that year, three of the songs nominated were from Beauty and the Beast, hmm. and that was the year, less than a year, after the death of Howard Ashman. Uh, he died of AIDS. And what today would have been his husband, at the time, I think they just said friend or partner, mm. or they just introduced him by name, and he came out and was like, I made a home and a life with Howard. Oh, my goodness. And I remembered it to this day. He says what's on his tombstone. He said on Howard's tombstone in Baltimore, says, uh, Oh, he had but one more song to sing. And this is my introduction to Howard oh, Ashman. Oh, gosh. Like, I'd never heard of this guy. And then I hear of him, and he's dead. And here's this other guy. Mm. And that was when everyone was wearing the red ribbons. Like, yeah. You know, we'd finally sort of settled into knowing how it's communicated. Right. As opposed to the sort of the dark days of misinformation. Yeah. So, yeah, like, my introduction. I mean, my introduction to him was through song. Sure. But as but a but as a name as a person, like, oh, this is a human who like wrote the songs. Yeah, yeah, that was wow. How I first like really heard the name and connected it with a person. 
but yeah, he was on Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and Little Mermaid. I mean, those were the Disney movies of my youth. Those were my Disney And the movies. giant turning point yeah, for Disney for sure. as a company. But and like, I was just at the right age for those movies that they were what, I mean, they were. They were everything. My obsession. Yeah. yeah. And if you go back a few years in Little Shop News, you find that there was a two night performance of Little Shop of Horrors. I believe it was for charity. They had among the cast Jake Gyllenhaal as Seymour. Wow. And they didn't have like a full Audrey 2. They just had like the singer would wear like a big coat mm. and like be green, like have a green light on him. Sure. And then in the role of Audrey, Ellen Green. Cute. Yep. Coming in at, uh, at 64, reprising the role that she had started all those years ago. Wow. I don't know when the last time she had performed it was. But her entrance brought down the house. Wow. And uh, hey, it's been, it's been four years. Why don't we do it again? Yeah. So its legacy uh, lives on. And I am uh, bowled over by how uh, bowled over you are by watching all this stuff for the first time. It's something I really did not expect to. I just never had had the inclination to seek out any of the iterations of this but i've really fallen in love with it i think it's really fun mm. and i would absolutely watch i would go if someone wanted me to go to a performance of it a live performance oh. i would go again and again because i feel like it's such an entertaining story the possibilities for like how they creatively do it i would want to see and i would 100 percent watch the 86 movie again like if anybody ever wants me to show it to them i'll be like take a seat let's pop some popcorn you're in for a ride. It's so good. Yeah. And you know what? And, and I'm just uh, staggered by how I chose this as a topic because I thought it'd be easy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, two it's movies and you saw a play and we're done, we're done. Yeah. Because uh, this is what I picked for us to like sort of half do over the holidays. Yeah. And then we could really get down to it in, in the new year. Yeah. And I was just like, two movies. How hard is that? It's like watching them is fine, but all of just all of the enthusiastic, passionate people who have been digging into all of this property for since 1960, really. Right. And to your point about the robustness of the elements of this property, so like the aspects oh, yeah. of acting, the singing, writing the music, directing a musical, the, the puppetry. The, the B-movie. Like, the B-movie sci-fi element, like the all Corman, that stuff. The Nicholson fans. It intersects in the middle, yeah. Yeah. The just... Nicholson fans. The Nicholson fans. <laughs> and it's like... Just fans of Bill Murray. Yeah. Just fans of Steve Martin, John yeah. Candy, Frank Goss. Yeah. Rick I mean, Moranis, who's yeah. coming out of retirement. It was announced recently. I did, I'll believe it when he, I see it. Well, they're saying he's signed on to do a, a Honey, I Shrunk the Kids thing. All right. Yeah, there's so many passionate people out there just flooding the world with information about this piece of property, this bizarre piece of property yep. which i hope folks if you've followed us all the way to the end we've uh, charged you up as well about the whole darn thing there's certainly more out there to discover than just what we've been able to share with you so check that out or just go back and check out the movie how long has it been folks since you've seen it for me about a day <laughs> um cat got any uh anything to uh to add well first i'll say if Anybody wants to contact us, we're everywhere, all oh, over the internet. Of course. So you can email us at boysandghouls at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, 
Twitter. Just Google Boys and Ghouls podcast. We're all over the place. Our picture um, will come up. We love hearing from people. We hear from people all the time about what you want to hear, about other fun facts you know that we didn't cover, or just to like geek out and be like, oh my God, I love that movie too. We love hearing that. And this is our 80th episode. Good Lord. Right? 80? I don't know. Our reasonably 80th episode. Yeah. So um, I would say that we'll get to work on the next one here soon. And until then, beware the moon. Prepare the curse.